part of the urge to write memoir for me is first of all whenever i want to express an idea i cannot express it except through a narrative and so narrative itself which is mainly based upon your own experiences becomes for me a vehicle of talking about the ideas and the passions and the feelings that i have Uh, but memoir, I think it is because of my experiences in the Islamic Republic. And having lived there for 18 years, and you know, you, when you live under an absolutist regime, the first thing that happens is the confiscation of your voice. And the fact that now you're not the one acting out your story or telling your story or being who you are. Someone else tells you that this is who you should be, this is who you, what you should do. And there has been in Iran ever, you know, as the years progressed, this urge to both read about the past, memoirs, history, and also um, to speak about the experiences. That was Azar Nafisi talking about her memoir, Things I've Been Silent About. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Azar Nafisi is best known as the author of the acclaimed Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books. Reading Lolita in Tehran is a vivid portrait of the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the subversive power of literature. Her second memoir, Things I've Been Silent About, Memories of a Prodigal Daughter, is, as the title suggests, a deeply personal reflection in which Azar comes to grips with her complex and overbearing mother, a woman from a generation who had limited choices, and explores the inspiration she found in her father's enchanting tales from classic Iranian literature. In the process, she gives us a moving account of her family's struggle to survive the cultural and political upheaval of revolution and repression in the Islamic Republic of Iran. I spoke to Azar Nafisi about things I've been silent about and asked her about her decision to write such a personal book. I think it was the most difficult thing I have ever done in my life. <laughs> it was excruciating, and I didn't want to write it. After reading Lolita in Tehran, I wanted to write a book um, uh, tentatively called Republic of Imagination, which was about the subversive role of uh, imagination in, in terms of our political, social, cultural lives. And my mother died when I was writing the acknowledgments to reading Lolita in Tehran. And our relationship was a very, very difficult one. And once she was gone, um, you know, I became even more obsessed with her. I felt as if there was an unfinished conversation that needed to be finished somehow, that I needed to carry on this conversation with her. I owed it to both of us. And then, of course, the most universal experiences come out of the personal. You need to empathize with one single individual in order to understand feelings and emotions and ideas. And through writing a personal memoir, I was very careful to not just talk about me, but to talk about me within a context uh, which went beyond me. And so this memoir is also within the historical and cultural and uh, social history of Iran within the lifespan of the individuals. Well, you come from a very interesting household. Rather crazy, but that yes. makes them interesting. <laughs> you and your mother are in battle for your immortal soul. Yes, oh. it was. A, well, you know, that was the whole thing. You know, she was such a... All of us are paradoxical once you get into an individual. But with her, she wanted to control and shape us, especially me. I was the firstborn and I was a girl. 
And for me, in order to keep my independent identity, I constantly had to resist her in one way or another. Otherwise, I would melt into what she was. But I also felt victimized in one sense, you know. And the victimization always paralyzes you. You know, the only way you come out of it is to denounce yourself as a victim, to, to think that you're a free agent. But in the last years of my mother's life and after her death, I kept wondering what was it that made her so bitter because the way she was acting towards me was not out of cruelty. And I realized that it was out of deep sense of vulnerability that she herself had lost her mother when she was very young and she had the proverbial stepmother, you know, and and she wanted to go on. She was very intelligent, top of her class, you know, and uh, she was not allowed to continue her education. Her best friend used to say, another intelligent woman gone to waste. <laughs> and so my mother wanted me to be all the things that she wasn't. She wanted me to continue my education, to be a public person. But at the same time, I feel that she was jealous of the mother I had that she didn't have. And so she constantly would put me down while trying to elevate me. And your relationship with your mother was exacerbated by her relationship with your father. Yeah, that relationship from the start was exacerbated because of the fact of my mother's first marriage. That was another loss that turned her bitter and inward. When she was very young, she fell in love with this handsome, intelligent young man who was actually the son of the prime minister at the time. And... When she married him on their wedding night, she discovered that they had not told her that he was afflicted with a fatal disease, uh, nephritis of kidneys. And the doctor had said that he doesn't have more than two years to live. And the doctor had said, let him have whatever he wants. And he wanted my mother without telling her. So she basically nursed him to his death, you know. And so all of these experiences created in her a sense of suspicion. By the time she got to my father, she already had lost her trust, you know. And by the time she had reached my father, she was frozen in the past. And being frozen in the past is very dangerous, as I discovered through my political experiences in Iran. When you do not allow change, you want to retain a moment that is already gone, you know, and that, that is what she did. Uh, she wanted that husband, that life, uh, which in reality she never had, and no one could replace it, uh, you know. And so my father and I, and later on my brother, younger brother, we all became complicit. Um, in order to survive this relationship, like a totalitarian system, you had to lie. You had to lie in order to survive. And then you hated yourself for having to lie. Azar, you're very clear that your mother's story and your story are meshed with the history of Iran. Yeah, and this book for me was, um, I always like to say, both a mourning and a celebration. And in one sense, it was a reckoning with my parents and a declaration of independence. And when you declare your independence, you cannot do it without paying homage to what you're declaring your independence from. And uh, it wasn't just about my parents. It was about Iran. It was about a country that, like the first love, no matter where else you go and what other loves you discover, that first love always stays with you, you know. But it was also a first love that I felt in so many ways had betrayed me. You know, I had left Iran when I was very young, and all my life I wanted to go back home. And I went home, and home was not home. 
And I always quote Adorno, the German philosopher, who used to say um, the highest form of morality is not to feel at home in your own home. So in a sense, it's good not to feel at home and to be restless. And I've learned that now. I want to be an outsider, in a sense, to never feel completely smug and complacent anywhere. But um, in another sense, that was not the Iran I knew. That was not the Iran I had grown up with. That was not the Iran that my father had told me about in the poems that he would read to me at at nights. And uh, that was not the religion I knew. It was a political ideology that had confiscated the religion and, and, and traditions. And, you know, in that name, it was ruling over us. And I felt very alien and very alone. Let's put this in a historical context. You lived in Iran with your parents under the rule of the Shah, which was... Before the revolution. And then I left Iran when I was very young at the age of 13. And then I returned to Iran after my studies were finished. And that happened to be the summer of 1979 when the Islamic revolution had happened. And of course, at the time, none of us knew uh, what will happen. Like all um, revolutions of its kind, it had a few surprises in store for us. Uh, And, you know, religion for me had so many different faces. Uh, My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, was an Orthodox Muslim, never took off her veil. But she was the kindest, most flexible and gentle woman I had ever known. Uh, We, her grandchildren, or my mother who never wore the veil, we would go swimming in the pool in our bikinis. And here she was with her veil, you know. And and my mother, who claimed to be a devout Muslim and who went to the pilgrimage, actually, she never wore the veil. Um, she was a very modern woman, you know, like this country. Um, Muslims came in all shapes and forms, uh, you know. And then there were Zoroastrians, which was the religion in Iran before Islam. I mean, if the history goes back to 2,500 years, half of it was Zoroastrian. Uh, Then we had Jews and uh, Christians and Baha'is and agnostics and atheists. Uh, People forget that, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, these people come and say, no, everyone is Muslim, but that Islam is the way they interpret it. It's like saying that um, uh, this country is Christian majority and all of you from tomorrow will act the way Jerry Falwell's version of Christianity is, you know. Who's to say that Mr. Ahmadinejad's uh, Islam is the genuine Islam? That is the right they took away from us, the right to choice. They confiscated everything that we had, including our religion. One way you subverted this was by reading and through literature. And this is what you document so beautifully in reading Lolita in Tehran. For me, literature is like blood in your veins. You don't see it. But if it stops running in the veins, life stops. I never imagined I could marry anyone who would not read, (laughs) you know. My brother and I used to be taken to these parties we hated by our parents, and we always went there in torn-up jeans and a book under our arms, (laughs) you know, to show people that is what we cared about. And my father, ever since I was a kid, he would tell us stories, and he would tell us later on that this country is so ancient, Iran, and it has been invaded so many times. And the only thing that gives us identity as an Iranian is our poetry. 
And in this new book, I talk about our epic poet, Ferdowsi, who actually 2010 is uh, the thousand year anniversary of Ferdowsi. And Ferdowsi, after the Arab invasion of Iran in the seventh century, when um, for the first time the Arab invasion forced the Iranians to even change their religion, so their sense of identity was lost. He wrote a thousand pages of poetry weaving in Iranian mythology going back to 3,000 years ago until the invasion of the Arabs. And he said that, I will be immortal. It is like Nabokov saying, governments come and go, only the trace of genius remains. And so ever since I was a kid, literature was a place I would go where the life I could not control would become controllable. I think literature is a resistance against both the tyranny of time and of man. And I, I, I was hoping you'd say it so I wouldn't mispronounce it. That's the Shan... Shahnameh. Shahnameh, Ferdowsi's Book of Kings. Yes. Uh, Shahnameh. You talk to every Iranian. It is impossible for them not to have... It's like Bible. And it is not just the elite, actually. It's a very... Um, there are traditional coffee houses in Iran where you have special people who sing Shahnameh uh, to the beat of music, a special music that is with Shahnameh. And in these coffee houses, because it began with oral history, people would come and tell the stories of Shahnameh. And in the Smithsonian and in the Met, there is this fantastic books, because in Iran, many of these books of tales and poetry came with um, illustrations, with miniatures. And there are such amazing illustrations. So people, it is both visual and oral as well as written, uh, you know. And that is where we all agree. And of course, this regime, when they first came in Iran, many of our streets were named after our poets. We had this Khayyam Street, who was the agnostic poet, talk about wine and women, Hafiz. And then we had a Ferdowsi Square, and there was a statue of Ferdowsi, you know, in that square. And one of the things they wanted to do was bring down that statue, and they couldn't. They could not change the name of our streets, the poets, and they could not bring down the statue. And in the end, they were forced to even acknowledge and have celebrations of him, which was always half-hearted because they hate him. But that is how a people survive. They survive through music and art and literature. This is the best of humanity, and it's always universal. Uh, for me, uh, since childhood reading, I read Mark Twain side by side with Pinocchio, side by side with Little Prince, and side by side with Shahnameh. Uh, for me, that was a republic of imagination that uh, I needed no passport based on my nationality, you know. You come from a family of storytellers. Your father was one kind of storyteller, your mother a little bit different. Tell us about your mother's stories. Now, when I think of it and all through the writing of this book, her stories are the ones that break my heart every time. My father was very articulate, and my brother is also, and I'm a writer. My mother was very inarticulate. And so there were stories that she would repeat almost verbatim each time, as if she had memorized them. And those were the snippets from the life that she had idealized. Uh, one was the story of her dance um, with her uh, first husband, that the first time I saw him, and he asked me to dance once, twice, three times. 
one was those, and one was the stories she would create about us and herself that never happened. And that is where I would say that it seemed like a totalitarian mindset, where she would turn me into someone that I wasn't and even talk about incidents that had never happened. She said, do you remember that day when I said something to you and you acted this way? I had not. But she would not accept it, you know. So the tyrannical instinct is on one hand molding this person into that ideal. And yet the things that I accomplished, which she acknowledged, but then she also put me down for it because she could never become that. You know, it is that ferocious relationship where you both want to get away, but there is an immense sense of empathy in me for the waste, for the women she could be. Your mother wouldn't come to America with you. No. She wouldn't come to America. And uh, partly, of course, both my parents were very courageous politically and socially. I mean, that I admire them almost unconditionally. People would think that they're crazy. But my mom would say, I will never ask these people, and she meant the government, for a passport. And I said, Mom, this is not asking them or begging them. This is your right. But she said, no, I will not carry their passport. And, and when she would go out in the morning, she was very proud of the fact that she would say things like, you might not see me come back because she would get in the bus on purpose in the bus and she would start bad mouthing the government. So she loved it. She would always say, I might not get back home. And, and when I came here and I would be giving the talks or writing about the conditions in Iran, she was always supporting. She always sent messages through people who would come here to say, tell her how proud I am that she's telling the truth. And she would say, I know that I won't see her because of that. And I'm very alone. But tell her that I'm very proud of my children because they're standing up uh, to these people. So there was that side to her as well, you know, that um, I wish I cherished more. We always thought about her as eccentric, but these eccentric cities were very beloved, in fact. Reading Lolita in Tehran was one of the many books that has been banned in Iran. And I guess what was so surprising to me was that there seemed to be no rhyme nor reason to the books that were banned. No, there isn't. You see, the most frightening thing about this regime, like any uh, uh, regime like this, is the arbitrariness. You never know. When I wrote Reading Lolita in Tehran, some people would say things to me, no, you're not telling the truth, uh, because they're not doing that now. I said that is the whole point. I, I mentioned in Reading Lolita that living in the Islamic Republic is like the month of April that there are showers and thunderstorms one moment and then a little bit of sunshine and then rain. So you never know, you know. And that is how they rule, that you're never sure. You're never sure that if you come out of the house and you have no makeup, you wore the whale properly, they might get you. Or you wonder you go out of the house, you have makeup and um, you look like uh, what they call a harlot and they don't get books is the same. Or they banned, like, for example, from Othello, Lawrence Olivia's film. They banned Desdemona from most scenes and they banned Othello's suicide because they said masses are depressed if they watch someone commit suicide. On the other hand, the book was there. People could read Othello, you know. It is very arbitrary. You wrote, living in Iran is like having sex with a man you loathe. Someone told me Martin Amis had said this is his favorite. <laughs> well, you know, I felt dirty because 
the horrible thing about tyranny is how they make you complicit in the crime they commit against you. Because I am the way I look right now. Even my appearance is not under my own control. So when I go into the streets in the morning, I have to, as Elliot would say, put on a face to meet the faces that I meet. And this face is not my face. The way I'm veiled is not me. The revolutionary guard who would arrest me if I don't look like that knows it. I know it. Everybody else knows it. So you become a lie. You are being someone whom you're not. It's in the same manner that people are scared to talk in public about certain things um, because there will be consequences. Valachlov Havel, in The Power of Powerless, talks about the same system in communism. Right. The Czech writer who the became Czech president, writer who became president of, of Czechoslovakia. And, and, and Havel talks about how like the green grocer has to put something very pro-system in his shop window that he does not at all believe in. So what they're teaching you is that um, you can be against yourself, you can negate yourself, and that is the only way you can survive. And that is one reason I wrote things I have been silent about. It is much easier to, to criticize others. You know, it's much easier for me to talk about Mr. Ahmadinejad. But it is far more difficult to see ways through which I myself become complicit, you know, and to admit. For me personally, and that is why personal life becomes so important, personally, when I married my first husband, no matter what excuses I could bring, that I was very young, my father was in jail, my mother was driving me crazy, yet that act of marrying a man that you really didn't love um, and, and justifying it to yourself, for me, was an act that was dirty. And actually, I think that's where I got my metaphor for the Islamic Republic um, from my first marriage, you know. Azar, I think you've answered this implicitly, but I want to end by asking you to talk quite explicitly about what you see as literature's power and joy. I think that reading is one of the most sensual things we can do because the whole idea of imagination um, is to evoke your senses. Our colleges and universities nowadays have turned the act of reading into a, um, a theoretical obscurity. But the whole idea of reading was, as Primo Levi says it, he says, I write in order to reconnect to the world, to humanity. That is why we, we read and write. And for me, reading awakens your senses because it constantly puts you in the experiences um, of others that you have not experienced before. The act of holding a book in your hand, touching it, it's a very tactile experience. The fact that you don't see those scenes, but you, see, you create them in your mind's eye is a very, very satisfying experience uh, for a reader. And the fact that it makes you connect to the whole world, it is always about another. Even when, it, when you identify, it is about that stranger within you that you hadn't known. Uh, unfortunately, the kind of political correctness that we have in this society nowadays, um, it teaches you that you should read and write about yourself. The most boring thing in life, I should read and write about you or the stranger in me, and you should read and interpret me. I and mean, this is how the world should run. And so for me right now, the most important mission is to ask the question, who will bail out imagination and thought? What will happen to a country that, as Saul Bellow says, has lost its love of poetry and its soul?
And on that we'll end. Azar Nafisi, thank you so thank much. Thank you. It was a thank pleasure. You. It was gorgeous talking to you. That was Azar Nafisi. She was talking about her memoir, Things I've Been Silent About. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Elixir of Life, composed and performed by A.J. Rossi and James Peterson, used courtesy of Lyric Core Discs, Inc. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on Beyond Campus and look for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, Isabel Wilkerson, author of The Warmth of Other Suns, talks about the impact of the Great Migration on American culture. To find out how artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NAA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.